Chapter 26 The vulgar commonplaces of sentiment, skepticism, or dogmatism, or the cold and heartless formalism of feeling that has never palpitated in your own heart, nor made another's throb, these shock no prejudices, these violate no decencies in the opinion of the world, however unveiled they may stand before it. Alphonse de Lamartine, The Wanderer and His Home 1851. On Friday morning, December 1st, the basement light switches on and I sit up in bed with a jolt. Labored footsteps tread down the creaking stairs, then well-worn slippers slap across concrete. Through bleary vision, my bedside clock reads 3.30 a.m. I've slept not even four hours. Knuckles rap urgently at the articulated streetcar door. Ross? Oh, Ross, are you awake? I rub crust from my bloodshot eyes and groan. Barely. What's going on? The door opens and my professor staggers through on wobbly legs. She leans against the jam, cheeks aflutter with light gasps. The sash around a maroon terry cloth bathrobe hangs loosely. Shaking hands gesture near her neck. Ross, I cannot breathe. Please, take me to the hospital. Heart pounding, I fling the warm covers aside and grab cargo pants from the nearest cardboard box behind Babette's enormous train table. After zipping up a black hoodie, I pull the straps on my tanker boots tight. No socks. Okay, let me help you up these stairs. Take my arm. Here we go. One at a time. Should we call an ambulance? No, just drive. My professor leans heavily against me as I half lift her bulk upstairs and then outside to the Toyota. She wheezes loudly and rattles with shivers. Deep shadows flicker around us from the old gas lamp. Settling her in the passenger seat, I rush around and start the engine. It hiccups into life. Immediately, the radio blares. I turn down Shostakovich and crank the heater on. Just a moment. Darting inside, I find a replica Hudson Bay Company blanket folded across an ottoman in the living room. I hurry back and drape the heavy striped fabric across Babette. Misty breath fills the gap between us. She swivels her gaze my direction, eyes full of misery. Santa Vincent, do you know the way? I cock my head. There are closer emergency rooms. That's almost in Beaverton. Her voice catches a fierce lungful of air. <gasps> no, take me to the Catholics. All right, all right. I reverse onto Tolman Street and zoom through a stop sign, barely slowing down. At last, the heater spurts warm air, and my professor stirs. Ross, thank you so much for driving. But there is one thing yet. My class this morning. I cannot tell the school. They will dismiss me. Will you teach it? My eyes open wide as I accelerate onto the freeway. Babette, I can't lecture a college-level class. What is it? Her throat rumbles. The roles of women in the Middle Ages. I slap the steering wheel with both hands and steal a look toward the passenger seat. There's just no way I can fake that. My professor's wan lips fracture into a faint smile. <laughs> Ross, Ross, then lecture about what you do know. My students are everything. I have complete faith. You will succeed. I sigh in surrender. Okay, what time is your class? 10 a.m. Twenty frantic minutes later, I peel off Barnes Road and veer right at the emergency sign in front of Providence St. Vincent. 
Babette fumbles with her seatbelt, but can't release the buckle. I climb out and run around to help. Her wide body supported against my shoulder, I stagger slowly through electronic doors. Just inside the vestibule, two nurses hurry over with a wheelchair and help lower Babette down. She is ashen-faced, her wig askew under the bright lights. One nurse moves behind, pushing the chair. Babette beckons, and I lean in close. I must go. Please know you mean the world to me. Come visit this afternoon. Goodbye now. Her frigid fingers squeeze my arm, but the pressure breaks as she is wheeled off. My own breath comes short and a chill runs through every nerve as they turn a corner and disappear. I glance up at a wall clock, almost 4.30 a.m. My sockless toes curl inside boots that squeak against the floor. I return to the Toyota, its engine still running. An ambulance idles several car lengths behind. Numbly, I shift out of park and drive home. It is early afternoon when I return. The hospital receptionist sighs wearily in response at my queries. No, sir, we do not have a Babette Ellsworth, Albert Ellsworth, or Bobby Ellsworth registered here. I'm sorry. Could you try Elizabeth Ellsworth? The woman types at her computer. Ah, yes, there we are. Room 423. I scribble this down on my hand with a permanent marker and head towards the elevator, stifling a yawn. Each limb hangs leaden with fatigue. I almost trip across an elderly woman who creaks behind her walker, hair thin and matted. Once the elevator chimes, number four, I stride down hallways that seem almost desolate. At the correct room, I pull a thin curtain aside and peer around. My head jerks back in alarm, but I recover, yank the cloth back, and burst through. Blood pools on beige tiles, dots crumpled white bedclothes, and the body of my professor, who lies diagonally on her back in bed. One bare foot presses flat on the floor. She looks up through thick glasses underneath the wig, which clings precariously to her head. Trembling hands clutch a blood-soaked towel between widespread legs. She spots my shocked expression and drops the cloth. A fresh wave of blood sluices down wobbling thighs, and I run over, face drained. What happened? Can you talk? Are you all right? She moans and speaks, words blurred with anguish. I bend closer, straining to hear. I know. I don't have much longer to live. Both eyelids drift shut. In panic, I run over to an emergency call button mounted on the wall and press it repeatedly. Nothing happens. My fist hammers two, three, four times. Cursing, I rush out into the hall. The distant figure of a nurse heads away with slow, measured paces. Help, I shout. The woman looks at me and pauses. Hey there, help, please, I repeat. She turns in my direction. I retrace red-smeared footprints to find Babette braced upright. Determination twists her broad face. No, 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 hold still. Lie down. You're going to be okay. Help is coming. At this, a hand flaked in clotted blood wraps around my forearm. The air is heavy and metallic. You have to get me out of here. I swear I can't stay a minute longer. Her voice rumbles low, lips close to my ear. They put these things in me. I can't bear it. I tore them all out. It is an absolute vision of hell. I notice a small oozing wound on the inside of her left wrist and several clear plastic tubes trailing along the floor. Voices sound nearby and three nurses bustle in. Two lower Babette back down and press a fresh towel between her legs. The third pulls me aside. Her tone is brisk. Are you a relative? Yes, her grandson. We need to keep Dr. Ellsworth overnight. 
She can't live like this. Look, here, what she's done to herself. A catheter tube must be deflated before it's removed from the urethra, but she ripped it out regardless. I don't want to sound callous, but your grandmother has been nothing but a terror for everyone. Please keep her under control. Like an animal, Babette croaks. Treated this way by you beasts. All three nurses turn and leave. I wet a washcloth at the nearby sink and wipe crusted streaks from my professor's arms. Babette's expression softens, and she gazes at me soberly. You must take me out of here immediately. I know soon I can regain my strength. Enough at least for us to fly to Las Vegas. We will be married. You may keep living in my house and preserve the library, and no one can stop you. All my books. Her voice drifts off. She blinks behind thick glasses that magnify her lazy right eye hugely out of proportion. Its gaze wanders over my shoulder, as if plotting a next move. I press tense lips together and swallow. My two eyes meet her one, yet are still outnumbered. We shall be wed, she continues calmly. And then, so I never come back to a place like this. I will commit suicide. I have the pills. It will be quick. Babette, I cry out. Stress and fatigue overwhelm me. Hot tears run down both cheeks. My professor stares with mild concern as I sink into a chair, sobs ragged. The hospital spins around me, her room a blood-spattered kaleidoscope. I choke down nausea, pull out a handkerchief, and blow my nose. Babette clears her throat. <coughs> if I might suggest a first order of business, please obtain a wheelchair. There may be some out in the hallway. I trumpet my nose again loudly. Sorry, this is a lot to handle right now. I've hardly slept, expected you to die at any moment this morning, taught my first college-level class, and then this. I gesture around the room. Can I just wheel you out of here? Don't you need to be discharged or something? My professor waves a dismissive arm, then dabs at her crotch with the towel. It seems my bleeding has stopped. One valuable lesson I learned long ago is not asking too many questions. Action! Just take action! Partway down the hallway, I find a wheelchair and quickly roll it back. Babette now sits up in bed, determination glinting behind her eyes. With a strong hoist from one side, I slide her on board. She settles back and stretches. Thank you, Ross. I feel better already. To lie in this room like a cadaver on a slab was simply intolerable. Let us leave here immediately. I gaze down at her. They put your robe in a bag here, but let me drape one of these clean towels over you. With all that blood soaking your gown, I'm afraid it'll cause a scene on the way out. Ah, what excellent foresight. My appearance might cause alarm. With her condition thus disguised, I push my professor down the hallway to an elevator. We emerge into the busy lobby, and I maneuver Babette out through the front door with no questions asked. Outside, bright sunlight shining down on a clear, chilly afternoon makes me blink. Once she is transferred into the car, I roll her wheelchair away and leave it against a bike rack. As we drive off, Babette smiles with delight. You know, I feel simply splendid now. What an exquisite day. Have you eaten yet? I am absolutely famished. The Toyota throbs into high gear as I accelerate onto the freeway. No, I didn't have time, what with preparing for your class and all. I came here right afterward. Don't worry, there's food at home. I'll make something for us and then put you to bed.
Ben? But I just escaped that dreadful fate. I have an idea. What about Wong's garden on Woodstock, where we first ate and talked so long ago? Let us stop there for lunch. Babette, you've lost so much blood. I can't let you walk in looking like a stabbing victim. They'll call the police. Plus, you're probably a major health code violation right now. Uh, true. But I still have my robe. I can cover myself and seem moderately respectable. Seriously, if you want Chinese, I'll just order takeout once we're back. Babette glares at me. Ross, take us there directly! Vite, vite! All right, calm down. You're the boss. Twenty minutes later, I turn into Wong's parking lot and park near the entrance. My professor braces against the door as she stands, face twisted with exertion. I furtively glance at passers-by on the sidewalk and help pull her maroon bathrobe over the soiled gown. Flaked blood still clings to Babette's wrinkled thighs, but the catheter wound must be staunched. I firmly tie the sash and straighten her wig. She raises a quizzical eyebrow. Am I presentable? You'll do. Just take this easy and lean on my arm. Now, watch your step. I'll hold the door for you. There. Look out as it closes. Okay, we're good. Inside, sesame oil from the kitchen fills my nostrils, and a young waitress seats us. We slide on vinyl upholstery into a side window booth. The girl swiftly returns, depositing a kettle and taking our orders. Once she departs, I pour hot tea. Babette gulps hers down while I pause for mine to cool. She smacks her lips together and beams. The frail invalid who proposed marriage on her deathbed scarcely an hour before has dissipated like steam above my tiny porcelain cup. So, Ross, how was my class this morning? I laugh. Oh, God. Well, given my lack of confident knowledge about women in the Middle Ages, I jumped ahead a few centuries and lectured on World War I, specifically Canada's role. My professor chortles. <laughs> Did that go over well? I think so. It's the subject I'd been reading lately and felt most confident talking about. You have a pretty good documentary in your collection, too. I talked as best I could and then showed the video. You encountered no difficulties? Not besides sleep deprivation. I explained you were ill and would be back on duty soon. Your students can really handle anything. They took the chronological leap forward in stride. Best of all, no one demanded my teaching credentials. <laughs> Thank you so much, dear Ross. You have truly saved my career. Well, next time please provide more warning. This day just about killed me. Babette shrugs. You can be so melodramatic. I'll soon have no need for the opera. She takes another sip of tea. Our waitress soon returns, placing a bowl of hot and sour soup before my professor, then orange chicken for me. With enthusiastic slurps from a large spoon, Babette dives in immediately. I break apart wooden chopsticks and sprinkle soy sauce over the rice mound on an adjacent plate. As I wolf down bite after bite, my boots squeak against the tile floor. I move them back and forth. It feels slick. Curious, I lift the tablecloth and gasp. Blood. Again. A thin stream courses down my professor's calves, puddling on the floor. Babette, I whisper. She takes another gulp and wipes moist lips on her bathrobe sleeve. Yes. You're bleeding again. It's everywhere. We need to get out of here now. Oh. She frowns and reaches down. The fingertips come back dripping red. I raise an arm and signal the waitress. She is slight, perhaps only a teenager, with short dark hair and glasses. Could we get some paper napkins? There's a bit of a mess. 
The girl nods, then looks more closely at my professor. Her eyes widen. She brings up a hand, covers her mouth, and pulls out a cell phone. Babette cries in alarm. Please, mademoiselle, there is no emergency. Just bring a few napkins to clean up and we can be on our way. The waitress retreats. After a moment, she returns, stacked brown paper towels in her arms. I rise, bunch several together, and hand them to my professor. The girl scowls at me before disappearing again. Babette looks up, face dismayed. I take in the bloody scene. Okay, hold these between your legs, keep the pressure up, then stand so I can wipe underneath. I'll clean the seat and make a quick pass on the floor. We gotta get moving before someone calls an ambulance and they haul you back. Also, get your wallet out. That poor girl deserves a serious tip. Babette follows my instructions silently. We hurry out, half-devoured remains of our meal, abandoned. Back home, I rush her upstairs to the bedroom. There she stands, trembling, as I remove the maroon bathrobe and strip away the thin hospital gown underneath. Naked, her exposed skin is veiny and gray. The bleeding has stopped once more, but dried crust coats both legs. Do you want a shower or a bath? I ask. No, I only need rest. Thank you for bringing me here. Okay. Get some sleep, then. I pull back the bed covers and tuck her in with a thick feather comforter on top. My professor sighs. This has been a tremendous day. No kidding. Babette's eyelids droop, and she lifts a blood-coated hand from beneath the bedclothes. I grasp her rough fingers, sandpaper, against my palm. Thank you so much, Ross. I don't know what I would do without you. A fresh wave of tears trickles down, dripping off my chin. Hours later, once evening has fallen, I drift into weary slumber. The night slips by, but despite deep fatigue, I wake up abruptly. Again, footsteps creak on the basement stairs. My clock reads a few minutes after 3 a.m. The steps continue, but now something is wrong. Babette would have turned on the light. These feet are unsure and ring out sharply in complete blackness. I freeze, ears alert. With a creak of hinges, the streetcar door swings open. Hesitant shoes move across the threshold and pause. I hold my breath. Underneath the bed is a bowie knife. I reach my arm down and clutch the wooden handle. Tense fingers grip it tightly, preparing to unsheath the blade. I hear an exhalation, and something drops on the floor with a light thump. Elastic snaps and fabric whispers. A zipper clatters downward. Bare feet kick away shoes and approach my bed. There is a sudden rush of honey perfume. I release my knife and pull back as someone naked, soft, and lushly fragrant slips beneath the covers with me. Anakia? I press against her back, reach around and cup a warm breast in one hand. She arches her spine at the pressure. There is no mistaking that scent or that height. Yes, it's me. You're so hard to find down here. I couldn't feel a light switch. Thought I'd break my neck on those stairs. What are you doing here? Oh, I had an awful night. Hardly made any money. Ended up in a car with two guys after my shift. I got a bad feeling. Sometimes you can just tell. So when we stopped at a red light, I jumped out and ran. They didn't follow. Abandoned a bag full of clothes to those assholes. They won't even appreciate the value. I walked down side streets for a while, just in case, then realized I'd wandered near your neighborhood. Your address is saved on my phone, and the porch light was on, so I knocked. Babette must have been awake because she answered right away. 
looked just like you described her. Anyway, she recognized me and said, You must be Anakia. I asked her for you, and she replied you were asleep. I'm glad you're safe, I interrupt. But you really can't come over here so late without warning. Anakia turns over and traces her fingers down my bare chest. Sorry, she breathes. I won't make a habit of it. I kiss her neck. You're forgiven. She pushes my head away. I'm not done telling you about tonight. So Babette invited me inside and said I could stay. Then she got a real sly look in her eye. Oh, Anakia, you are so beautiful and I am so cold. Please come share my bed tonight. Damn, I exclaim. That's bold. I told her, of course I'd love to spend the night with you, but after I use the toilet. She pointed out the bathroom. <laughs> then I just waited inside until she gave up and went upstairs. Anakia laughs. My mouth moves near her ear. Babette's a lecherous old biddy, but I gotta hand it to her. What a sex drive, even after nearly dying yesterday. What do you mean? She could barely breathe, so I took her to the hospital last night and then broke her out this afternoon. She was bleeding everywhere from yanking out a catheter tube. It tore the hell out of her urethra. With all the blood loss, it's amazing she has energy to move, let alone attempt a seduction. I thought she might expire right in front of me. Then, smack in the middle of it all, Babette asked me to marry her. Wait, so you're engaged? No, I don't think so. I didn't accept. You told her no? I couldn't say anything. What do you do when someone like her proposes marriage from a pool of blood? We've become so close. The idea she might die was too much. I just burst into tears. She hasn't mentioned it again. I know I won't bring it up. We lie together in darkness. Anakia turns over again, pressing close, and I nuzzle fragrant skin on the back of her neck. It tastes intoxicating under my lips. To hold her at last feels unreal, as if the moon truly was clenched in my teeth. I bite down gently on a soft earlobe. There is no response. Anakia's bosom rises and falls with slow, even breaths. I sigh, and soon exhaustion overtakes me as well. At 6.30 a.m., my alarm clock shrieks and I jolt awake. Anakia's body is wrapped around me, our legs and arms entangled. I switch off the noise. It would be heaven to stay with her like this, but the restaurant where I've picked up a few hours dishwashing opens in an hour. Carefully, I extricate myself and get dressed. Anakia remains curled under the blankets, her delicious form insensible. I tiptoe upstairs and check on Babette. My professor lies prostrate. Heavy snores rumble from pillows mounded around her head. Shortly after noon, I return home, fingers dry and cracked from soapy dishwater. The driveway is empty. Babette must have needed an emergency mass after her near-death experience. Hopefully nothing more energetic. I open the front door. Anakia stands before the dining room table, cell phone in hand. Oh, she exclaims. I just called for a taxi. Right on. When did you get up? A few hours ago. I came upstairs as Babette cooked breakfast. She didn't mention anything about last night, just asked if I'd like some food. Well, I said yes, so she gave me a plate of eggs and toast, then sat in the chair across from me, her bathrobe open and pussy exposed just staring at me while I ate. The eggs were runny. Oh God, those runny, runny eggs? She shivers at the memory and looks down at her phone. It tinkles an electronic melody. That's my cab. It must be out front. She opens the door and peers out. 
Thanks for everything. We'll talk soon. Oh, I still can't get it out of my mind. Those runny, runny eggs? I close the door behind her. Clocks tick away their steady chorus, and dishes from yesterday are still piled in the sink. My expert hands make short work of these. Afterward, I am sitting in the breakfast nook with a copy of Maclean's when the front door opens and Babette bursts inside. She enters the kitchen, all smiles. I reflexively check the exposed ankles below her skirt, but see no blood. Oh, Ross, she begins. Today I attended late mass and heard the most timely sermon of my life. Sexual temptation. Such an appropriate subject after encountering your friend last night. She was all you described, and more. I nod in agreement. But still, my professor pauses and frowns. Her abilities are not yet fully realized. A woman with her potential could be so much more. Living in cheap motels, as you say, and her predations limited to men who frequent dance parlors. Well, mere fox hunts on the Kia is a caliber suitable for big game. She's only 21, I observe. Babette shrugs. Her skills lack temper and are not aimed for long-term success. She is like a wild beast whose destructive powers rage in all directions without focus. I certainly hope you maintain enough distance from such a creature for your own safety. I'll do my best. My professor's grin relaxes and she sits down. So, I am very excited about our upcoming train trip to Santa Barbara. Some time back on the rails will do me no end of good. Also, there is a very special concert in Yakima next weekend. Do you think we might drive up together Saturday afternoon and then return Sunday? Certainly. Babette beams. Ah, I promise a performance you will not regret. In the meantime, perhaps you might assist tidying my quarters? The amount of blood I lost appears rather significant. I sigh. Yeah, let's get that over with. Upstairs, I find my professor's sheets stiff and crusted. Underneath soiled bedclothes, stains even penetrate the mattress. I swallow hard and flip it upside down. Sheets, blankets, pillowcases, and Babette's bathrobe all go down the laundry chute. Fortunately, her bedroom carpet is scarlet already. The bathroom is another matter. Dried blood spatters everything from the yellow tile floor to porcelain toilet and bidet. With a pail of bleach water at my side, I scrub every surface until no rusty traces remain. As I finish wiping down the sink, Babette's reflection appears in the mirror before me. Thank you, Ross. I really don't know how I made such a mess. I pour out my bucket, and water gurgles down the toilet bowl in a dark spiral. Seriously, let's not do this again.